Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. Dawn Cornelius did not choose investing as her first career. In fact, it took her more than a decade to decide the share market had the ability to grip her substantial intellect. Her first choice was science. That part took her all the way to a doctorate and a research position at the prestigious University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Her successful rise in the world of academia was not enough to retain her interest. A move back to Australia saw her pivot towards financial markets and a position in asset management. That decision was life-changing, but took a long and winding road. Various jobs honing her skills over nearly 15 years culminated in the senior portfolio manager of small companies at Colonial First State. She took the role amid the GFC, which proved to be a springboard for a long and successful stint. Her unorthodox journey to managing money has not stopped her climbing to the top of the mountain. Today, she oversees billions of dollars. Her performance over more than a decade has been stellar, and borrowing from academic vernacular, she can be considered the Dean of Small Cap Investors in Australia. Cornelius has used her training in science to bring a specific structure and approach to investing. With a unique ability to assess the quality of companies, she has managed to consistently outperform her index benchmarks, despite having the burden of large quantities of money. It has also helped her construct portfolios that have performed through the volatility presented in recent years. Welcome, Dawn. It was interesting, I said climb to the top of the mountain. We've just been talking about you climbing mountains. Yeah, that's right. You just enjoyed a holiday. It I must did. be good to get away from the markets. Yeah, no, it was wonderful to go to Patagonia and, yeah, and see, you know, the planet at its most raw and beautiful and a lot of that is being reflected in how we invest these days with respect to responsible investing and in particular the bit of the market that I operate in that has a high proportion of resource stocks that are ex- that are critical minerals that are going to help obviously accelerate you know, clean energy and the decarbonisation of the world. Yep, South America is definitely going to play a role in that. It's been an interesting journey. It's yes. It's been a few right turns, left turns, and you've ended up here. It, it feels exhausting reading about it. Do you ever feel tired? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, there's um, method in the madness. I mean, there was, um, you know, I made the decision to to join, to take on a role in, in, in investing, but I could have just as easily gone into management consulting, which is uh, what my ex-husband went into. He had an engineering degree from um, Cambridge University. And at the time, we just decided that having two members of the family as uh, management consultants working at McKinsey or places like that was probably uh, not not a good idea. And yeah, and I ended up in uh, funds management just, you know, through trial and error. I could have just as easily joined, you know, ICI, which, you know, in Australia became Dulux and Orica, which a lot of my colleagues, um, my former students that I was at university ended up in and, and are still working there or at Bayer or any of those types of companies. But yeah, I, um, I fell into investing. And that proved to be a pretty good decision looking back on it. So can I take you back a ways like we do in the show and just talk about when you were young, what were you thinking about kids, you know, they want to be a policeman, they want to be a doctor, they want to be a fireman or a firewoman. What were you thinking? Were you thinking science, fund management? What was going through your yeah, head? Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, in those days, I mean, funds management probably didn't exist as an industry as we know it. I'm 59 years old. Uh, I'm happy to say. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because it's not polite to ask. <laughs> and so uh, growing up, I suppose, in the 70s, going to, to high school and even in, you know, my first year at school was 1969, things like funds management really weren't on the horizon as career. I mean, we didn't have superannuation. We didn't have the explosion of the industry as we currently know it. But certainly since I had consciousness, I knew that I was uh, going to go to university. I grew up in a very socially progressive family, even though my, my parents were migrants from Greece. They came out in the late 50s, but my father was a skilled migrant. They were very highly educated. They were urban and they were very pro, um, you know, the, the feminist movement. And they certainly, there was never any indication that I was always going to have a career and that that was in a way going to define me rather than uh, being defined as a mother and a, and a housewife. So that was never really something that even entered my mind. So I think from the moment I had consciousness, I thought I was going to be an academic actually. 
I didn't know that what to hide. That would have went down well at the school conversations <laughs> in primary school. Or that I was going to be a doctor because that's all you knew. You knew that, well, I, I don't think I want to be a teacher, but, you know, working in a university looks, you know, glamorous because you do research. And then the idea of, you know, being a doctor, being academically driven and, and helping people was also something that, you know, you understood because you, you went into hospitals and they were people that you respected. They were people who were, you know, who cared about people and who also um, were obviously academically inclined. It's been a great path for a lot of migrant families that their kids do go on and study. But you mentioned your dad was skilled. Yeah. What What was his training? So my dad was a fitter and turner and he was uh, one of the eldest in his family. Most of, and because of the time that he grew up, he didn't get to go to university. He was, uh, for example, his younger brothers all went to university and actually stayed in Greece. They didn't need to migrate. Right. Uh, and they, they studied economics and they ran the equivalent of the big insurance companies and things like that. So so for him, that was not an option. And uh, he came out in, uh, you know, when Australia was building and he was actually one of the first fly in, fly out workers, skilled workers. He was a fitter and turner. So uh, I don't know whether you've seen Red Dog, the movie that uh, yep. Rio Tinto, he was probably one of uh, those migrants working out there because I remember him going to Perth and thinking, wow, Perth, that's so far away. And, it is. <laughs> and, and him bringing back, you know, little trinkets for me, you know, from uh, from from this, you know, from this place that nobody in the east coast of Australia actually went to in the early 70s. But he also helped to build um, CRA, now Rio Tinto's alumina refinery in Gladstone. I remember him spending time there. And I remember also he was in Port Kembla, Lysat building, obviously what is, became BHP is now Blue Scope, those uh, blast furnaces. And so it was an incredible time for Australia. My father was also a trade union leader. So he believed very strongly in uh, in protecting people's rights. Well, things changed a lot then. Whitlam government, yeah. Bob Hawke in charge of the ACT, the exciting time. Yeah, it was a very exciting time. And obviously my dad was involved in a lot of those things. So they formed a lot of my views on, you know, politics, obviously. And, and there was a lot of discussion at home. So and just, just to interject there, your mum, what yeah, was she? She was a housewife, but yeah, but again, she came from from an urban environment. So for her in Greece, so so for her even coming- Also to, from Greece. Also they from They married Greece. here? Or no, they-, they married over there. So yeah, so for them, this was not only strange coming to a new country, but it was, you know, a lot of the Greek migrants came from parts of Greece that they didn't have a lot of, you know, contact with, whether they were islands or they were people who were from rural locations. So, you know, they were people who grew up going to plays and believing the feminist movement um, weren't religious at all. So those sorts of things made them a little bit outsiders, but because they weren't tied into the traditional, you know, where a lot of unskilled people came in either as factory workers or as, you know, running shops, which you probably grew up, <laughs> fish and chip shops and things like that, because they were different. And obviously, my father earned a very good income, you know, being a fly-in, fly-out operator, as they do today. They experienced Australia to its fullest. So, you know, we used to go camping a lot. We had a caravan. We'd go up the coast. They loved Australia. They loved the coast. They never wanted to go back. They loved everything about it, the the bush, the physicality of it. They loved our culture, the Australian way of doing wow. things, our political system, our democracy. They loved everything about it. And we, we had a beach house on the central coast, which I still have, actually. They even had a, uh, a farm in the Hunter Valley, just a hobby farm, which we used to go to. But I, I grew up in the inner west of Sydney in Annandale, where I still live. In fact, I live in the house that I grew up in, which has been obviously changed over the years, modified, and where my children have grown up in. So yeah, so I haven't really moved from where I grew up. I'm pretty authentically me, if you like. <laughs> and, and around the around the kitchen table, a mm. couple of things there. Did you speak Greek as a child or were they that progressive where we must speak English, we're in a new country? 
We spoke both. I mean, I spoke Greek to my parents out of respect and, and respect for their culture. But, you know, in public, we would speak English. And for example, they, they never taught my children who, whose father is English, Anglo-Saxon English, not uh, of Greek background. Um, so um, they never spoke Greek to my children. So my children don't speak Greek at all. They only spoke English to them, which of course, you know, is, is difficult because, you know, sometimes they, you know, we have been to Greece couple of times with the kids and uh, and it's difficult for me because I might be communicating and they don't they haven't got a clue what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah we're in the same boat my my wife's Hungarian so we've right. done exactly the same yeah. hmm. but sometimes it's good not to know what people are saying <laughs> yes. so just continue on with those conversations it doesn't sound like you talked about the share market much or how companies worked or the magic of what works in the commercial world all the stuff that you look at now that wasn't in the conversation was they were they were pretty aware my dad bought houses understood investing from from that perspective which a lot of people obviously in Australia that's their uh, point of call the share market probably not as much but they were they were definitely financially aware because obviously they built up a lot of wealth over time they understood you know saving and investing in property and um, those sorts of things I don't think it was as prevalent at that time time, unless you came from a particularly wealthy background, to actually invest in in the stock market. No, it was unusual in those days. It's different yep. different today, yep. as you said, with superannuation. Yep. And as far as school goes, I've noticed you've been on the St. Scholasticus or Skulls board. That was yep. your school? That was my school, yes. One of the uh, nuns was very keen for me to join. Once we launched our MECAV fund and there were more people in the team, it became more difficult for me to fulfil some of my duties there. As a director of the school. As, yeah, as a director, I was the head of the finance committee, the one, you know, who had most of the work. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very adamant. They kept changing it so that, you know, the time that I was on the board didn't quite look like the time I was on the board so that they keep extending it. But it was, you know, because I take all of my responsibilities very, I'm very conscientious. It did take a lot of my time, which I felt that increasingly I wouldn't be able to devote the level of stewardship it is a lot that's of work, required to be on on those boards. But it was it was a great time. Again, a very socially progressive Catholic girls' school in Glebe, in my hood, and one that is run by nuns. You know, it's very unusual. Still? Yes. Uh, so the Sisters of the Good Samaritan effectively own the school and run it and did when I was there and still do. So it, it has a very different slant from, I suppose, other Catholic schools. And then you started your academic journey beyond school into doing a science degree at Sydney Uni, in particular chemistry. Were you a pioneer? Was that unusual? Did you turn up in your first class because people actually used to go to classes? Yeah. And you looked around <laughs> and there was 90% men. Yeah, Is so that the way it worked? Yeah. So it was a little bit like, you know, so finance for me was relatively, you know, had more females certainly than science. So people who were in those chemistry classes were either doing engineering or they were doing pure science and it was very competitive too. So so my cohort, yeah, was dominated by men. That was not unusual. And it strikes me that you might have liked that competitive environment. Yeah, I mean, I was academically competitive, and and that's something that that drives me as a as a character. And it's I think um, I think I heard John Coombe from Jana once say that when uh, I read an article that it's what differentiates great fund managers. I don't know whether I'm misquoting him here. <laughs> I'm having dinner with him in a couple of weeks, but he said it's that desire to win. It's not about actually the accumulation of money. It's more the that that desire to win. Yeah. And and I suppose that's endemic in a lot of people who, who work in our industry. Well, the scoreboard's up not only every day, every minute, unfortunately, right. it haunts <laughs> us, that scoreboard. Yeah. You study science, you obviously did very well at it, yeah. your competitive nature and natural flair for science. Then you do a PhD through personal experience. It's a lonely job doing a PhD. Did you do it in terms of coursework or was it a thesis? And if it was a thesis, what did you yeah. take on board? 
it was actually a thesis and it was actually on rare earths, which of course are uh, very, very relevant today. (laughs) Yeah, you say it's lonely, but um, it is if you're probably doing humanities where you're very focused on internal and you're in a library. But in science, you're in a laboratory situation and it's there's a lot of camaraderie, you're in teams, there's lots of people around you also doing research and there's a lot of cross-fertilisation. So in many stimulating ways, environment. Very stimulating environment, highly intelligent people constantly and everybody's helping each other, constantly challenging each other and challenging each other's ideas. Not too dissimilar to actually where I've just, you know, walked across the road to come to here. Very similar environment except, you know, you don't have any apparatus in front of you. But it's, again, people challenging you, people questioning why you would do uh, a process in that particular way, spending time with, um, again, um, my supervisor who only recently passed away but was a, a great leader and, you know, just a fantastic mentor. And, you know, I'll add, you know, I've had a great experience as a woman in my career of being mentored by some great men, in fact, almost entirely <laughs> men in my career who have been fantastic champions of my career. And I often tell young women that, you know, unless they're obviously reporting to me, to a female, that if they, you know, that there are great men who who do recognise people who have talent or people who have desire to succeed or to, to, to try to be exceptional and that they are willing to help them and further their careers and that those those people are, you know, you will look back on as being great builders of everything that you do in your career. Well, let's get a little bit dry. What was your findings from your thesis on rare earths? Okay. Well, I was actually just looking at monodispersed colloids consisting of rare earths. So the kinetics. Don't worry, everyone. I'm lost as well. (laughs) The kinetics of how they actually are formed. I'm told that these days, because it's been so long that I've done chemistry, in fact, a company that we have shares in, InsideTech Pivot, they use it and we used it using a process of the decomposition of urea. And uh, we had rare earths in in the formula. It's actually a lot of the findings from that are being used by InsiTech Pivot in their manufacturing of urea pellets in Gibson Island. Not that they actually know that when they see me, because you know I'm focused on their cash flow statements and their and those sorts of things. So uh, well, that's what I you're worked at the on. opposite end of the scale. Whenever it comes to science <laughs> with me and I see a company, I always say you can tell me whatever you like. I'll probably believe yeah. you. So you've got, you're well ahead yeah. of me on that front. And it helps, you know, um, because my whole team is very science oriented. They all did exceptionally well in science in high school and could have been scientists. In fact, all of them, when biotechs come in or, you know, businesses with new tech, uh, whether it's Calix, uh, and in fact, the scientists behind that that technology was my supervisor for my honours degree, which was also a thesis at Sydney University a hundred years ago. Uh, Mark Skeets, he's the uh, scientist. So they do ask questions that, you know, go down to the heart of it because, you know, we've We've obviously seen globally with the recent situation in the US where where people get hooked in, even people like Larry Ellison, into investing in what they believe are new technologies that are not fraudulent. And so it's very important that that you're very sceptical about these things. Definitely, especially when people are trying to raise money to get those ventures out of the ground. So it must have felt like when you decided or you got accepted to go to Oxford that if you're in the research world, academic yeah. world, you died and gone to heaven. I can't think of too many yeah. other places you'd yeah. rather be. Was that the case when you well, packed actually, up and went no. the other side of the actually, world? Actually, no, because my supervisor in, in Australia, um, Professor James Beatty, he was American. He studied at Princeton and he actually he did a master's at Cambridge and a, his PhD at Northwestern, which is a, a very prestigious university in Chicago. And I was actually offered a position at Cornell, which is a very, very prestigious university in America. And for science, I mean, I know Oxford's important, but but so were these, and also Chicago, which is one of the top universities in chemistry, and Oxford. 
And I said, I want to go, I want to go here. <laughs> I want to go to Cornell, right? Because it's like Ivy League University, you know, the US, the investment that goes into science in the US is enormous. The person who actually, the academic who actually went through my thesis and awarded it, because it, it can't be your actual supervisor, it has to be a peer, was actually a, a professor of chemistry at Cornell University. And he said, you don't want to go there, to quote him. And I said, why not? And he said, well, darn, it snows, you know, 10 months of the year at Cornell University. And if you go to Chicago, you're going to die. And I said, well, am I going to die? And he said, oh, well, it's, you know, it's in a very dangerous part of the city. You won't be able to walk to the labs at night without being escorted. You don't want to live like that. That gives you like a different perspective yeah. <laughs> on Ivy League oh, school. Okay. And he said, and Dawn, you know, you like, you know, you like music and I know Chicago's great, but you want to go to Oxford. <laughs> That's interesting, an American yeah. turning you away. Yeah. That, that's, so, I imagine that was good yeah. advice at the time, but you yeah. only knew in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. No, it was great. It was great. And it was a great opportunity because we were bouncing neutrons off surfaces, uh, the work that I was, the, the lab that I was working in, the physical chemistry lab at Oxford. And we were doing experiments at the CERN accelerator in Grenoble in France and also one uh, Didcot in uh, just outside of Oxford. And we'd also go to Brookhaven, which is in Long Island, and the other place was just outside Washington, D.C. So we got to go to these incredible- travelled around. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, incredible laboratories around the world because you needed to find neutron beams. And obviously, Oxford University doesn't have a nuclear reactor. So these were research nuclear reactors, and the one at Brookhaven dated around Oppenheimer's time, you know, the atom bomb time. Yeah, so these facilities where scientists using nuclear material and neutron beams basically to elucidate structures of molecules, surfactants, uh, on surfaces. So whether it's liquid, solid, liquid, liquid, detergents, all sorts of things, how cells, how um, fluids go through cell walls, trying to understand all of that. And we use neutron beams to, to work out what the structures of the molecules were that changes in surfaces. Science building the world. Yes, that and was great. But what made you, your three years, yeah. if my research is correct, but then you turned around. Now, I saw an interview where you said a number of the people who were researchers were being picked up in the UK yeah. by financial groups yeah. because they had certain skills. Yeah. But you turned around and came all the way back to Australia. Was, yeah. was it because you got a job or you thought, no, yeah. Australia's my home. I'm going to go yeah. home. I've done yeah. my stint. How yeah. did that pan out? Yeah, I got I got married over there to an Englishman and, yeah, and we made a decision. I wanted to come back home. Why is that? Uh, like your parents, you love yeah, Australia. Yeah, I love Australia. I'm Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of great weather and great food in the UK. No, um, I love Australia, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to come back. Whilst I was at Oxford, a lot of people, as, as you stated, were they would go to work for BP, the big oil and gas company or they're going to ICI. But but a lot of people, it was a time when the markets became deregulated and studying obviously classics or politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford was not enough really to deal with the complexity of the financial markets and the types of people that they were hiring. And in addition to that, things like McKinsey and Bain and BCG, all of those um, were flourishing. And again, they were hiring uh, people with engineering degrees and science degrees because, you know, it brings a, a different level of problem solving that they felt would enhance what they were doing. And so I thought, oh, well, I could do that or I could be an academic. I like the idea of, you know, being able to choose a job in a large city because when you're a scientist, you have to go where the jobs are and the job could be in Tasmania, not that there's anything wrong with Tasmania, but I didn't want to live in Tasmania or I didn't want to live in, you know, somewhere in Ohio. Freedom um, of choice. Yeah, freedom of choice. And obviously um, the superannuation, you know, uh, revolution in Australia meant that there were financial markets suddenly became a, a huge industry versus a, a much smaller industry where, you know, a particular type of person person went into, it became more open to, to people with different skills and even to women. 
did you just take pure risk? Did you leave Oxford, fly back to Australia and look for a job? So there was a period where you, because yeah. being an academic in Australia, yeah. I, I presume yeah. is not quite in the same league as being an academic in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. I could be wrong there, but that's yeah. the way it feels. But you took that risk and thought, yeah. I'll give it a go. No. So what actually happened is I came back to Australia and I got a immediately got a, offered uh, two jobs, one at Sydney University and at UTS, where they were commercialising technology coming out of uh, universities, which of course is really, really interesting. And I did that for about a year or so. Right. And then, yeah, a headhunter said, look, this might be of interest to you. There was a uh, funds management role working with Albert Hung, who was another great mentor at Tower Asset Management. I took on um, that role because my ex-husband got a job at McKinsey, which was the other all alternative. Still me. a big decision. Yeah, yeah. But Were it you was, nervous uh, the first day? Uh, yes, really <laughs> nervous. <laughs> but I, I sort of got it pretty quickly. Right. And you can tell people who, who get it. And, and you know, so the, the metrication and the numbers and that bit of it didn't bother me. It was trying to understand, you know, the, the jargon. And of course I did, um, you know, the Securities Institute course. I did it, started it immediately and really enjoyed that as well, you know, and sort of thought, oh, gee, it would have been really interesting to do an economics degree. Yeah. And what, what were the first couple of things that you noticed that was different or some of the key things you picked up very early that you had to get on top of when you're, yeah. when you're managing assets? And I presume yeah. it was equities? Yeah, it was equities. And yeah, I was given responsibility and there was a, another mentor there, Don Lowe, who was also a lovely, lovely man who retired years ago. And he took over from Albert and then he went, I think, to Alliance Bernstein to run a fund there before he he retired. But I suppose what I noticed was that there were a lot of risks involved and you couldn't know everything, unlike in science where you, you try to understand everything. But that that didn't phase me because, you know, I my personality was such that I wasn't I wasn't um, somebody who was so analytical and if you like um, narrow in in the way they approach life because I was interested in many other things apart from from science. You know, I love music. You know, I grew up in the 70s when punk happened, which was the greatest revolution in music, you know, of my generation. And it just changed everything in terms of post-punk, you know, all the great bands that came out of Australia and Manchester and even Nirvana afterwards and all these really, really great, exciting things. So I was always interested in, in many arts. things. Yeah. So I wasn't, you know, narrow in terms of, uh, of the way that I looked at things. So for me, that naturally played to some of my strengths as well. Did they sit you down and say there are certain ways we do things, there are certain rules, how we look at things, how we build our investment case that you learnt early on? Yes, yes, there were. Um, and did they and stick with you? Because no normally the first people you're yeah. associated with have yeah. the biggest influence. Yeah. I mean, Oh, what well, one thing that <laughs> I remember Albert saying, he had a very long position in banks for a long time, which obviously worked, particularly early, uh, you know, early 90s to All the way through that decade. Through that decade. And he always said, Dawn, the banks are where the money are. So that's, <laughs> they will always make money. I think that was a bad dad joke <laughs> rather than yes, a, it was a bad. It was a bad dad joke. But what I was trying to really say was, I think, uh, his ability to really question everything. So the BS of a lot of, you know, companies, a lot of companies, particularly in the small cap sector, which I eventually specialized in, there is a lot of uh, promotional side to it from CEOs. And so, so you have to cut through that or you have to see through promotional and actually see what are the facts and being a scientist and working with those people because Don was a geologist and Albert was very, very extremely highly metricated that they didn't get caught up in the emotions of what they were doing. They were always looking at what the facts were, what the balance sheet was saying and what the cash flow statement was saying, what the free cash flow of this business was, was it a sustainable business and, you know, what those, were those margins defensible over a long period of time? Numbers win in the end. Yes, Not numbers, always in the short term, yes, but they win right. in the end. That's right. 
going on from there, the next, as I said in the intro, it was a bit of a long and winding yeah. road. You were both in on the buy side, the yeah. sell side. Yeah. You had quite a few jobs. Was that a case yeah. of never kind of finding the home that you wanted or circumstances at different places, jobs moved on? No. How would um, you describe that yeah, period? Yeah, so I, I never personally lost a job. <laughs> yeah. I'm not suggesting that. <laughs> no, no, but I'm just saying I never, I was never in that situation. The first, the first time I moved, Albert actually left Tower Mm -hmm. and I felt um, because I'd only been doing it for a while and I was still doing the Securities Institute that a good thing for me to do for my experience, so this was my choice, was I joined Macintosh and worked as an Associate Analyst to Elaine Pryor who was then the number one rated um, BHP Analyst. Macintosh the broker, so you're on the sell side. Yeah, which became part of, um, uh, was bought while I was still there by Merrill Lynch and so I worked for Merrill Lynch for a, a time as well. Well, so and my role was exclusively to model uh, everything. So the oil and gas part for of it Elaine. for Elaine in a very, very detailed way. And so that was like my university education in modelling. And what was great was that it was also resources where I, I'm still the sort of, you know, expert in the team and still and has followed me throughout my career. So it was great to to do that. But I personally felt, in fact, I got a pay cut. So all you young people out there, I got a pay cut. And I certainly got a status cut doing that role of being, you know, the associate to a star, number one rated, you know, she, analyst. She, she was a star. Yeah. And, and it was a really good lesson, again, in, in metrication, uh, young people out there, because I the first thing I had to do, I think you might recall, they spent a billion dollars buying a copper business called Magma. Elaine had just done uh, some of the metrics for it, but hadn't actually fully modelled it. I modelled it bottom up, mine by mine, and then I did a scenario analysis and it didn't take uh, much for the copper price to fall slightly for for that business to be loss making. And so um, Elaine then took my model and we wrote a piece and it went out to the market and it showed the sensitivities. And um, I think at the time BHP fell a lot, like, 10, 20, a lot. It was the biggest stock in Australia. And I remember Elaine was in South America and I was getting a call from ASIC (laughs) trying to work out what I'd done and from the board of BHP. And that, of course, you know, caused eventually a year or so later, clearly the CEO and the entire board was gone (laughs) on the back of that decision. It showed you know, it was very early on in my career just how powerful numbers are and facts are. And, you know, I had no idea. All I did was, you know, I just did what I was told. You know, this is you you mine X ton at this cost. You put in, a, you know, this. It didn't sound that complex ex- now that you say it like that. that. <laughs> this but was but the they cost actually found a billion dollars, which was would be a lot more in a today's money. A billion dollars was, yeah, like 20 billion today or but more. You must yeah. have thought at that stage, yeah. I get this game. This is kind yeah, of yeah. Now I feel very comfortable yeah. in my own and shoes. Is that true? Was that that moment? Yeah, that moment. But then I, 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 I was pregnant and I went on maternity leave and I was actually poached by Albert, who'd gone to Legal and General. Right. And so I joined Legal and General uh, after I had my son, my first son, and that was you know nine month break. And Legal and General literally got taken over by Colonial <laughs> two months after I joined. <laughs> So that's why I was only there for four months. Obviously, it takes a couple of months for them to work through everything. But they didn't keep uh, the staff at Legal and General. And that was the old Pac-Man days. Mm-hmm. Peter uh, Smedley. Yes, yeah, so I was literally there two months. And then, of course, there was the Asian financial crisis. And as you're probably aware, a lot of everybody was losing their job in the financial markets. It was an extremely difficult time. And I was offered a, a role that was catered to me at Ordmanet, again, on the sell side because that was all that was going at the time and also because it looked really, really interesting and it was small caps. And I worked with Jared Eakin, who was, again, a great mentor and a lovely, lovely man who taught me a huge amount. And we listed Well, Jared managed money for a long time yeah, before that. Yes, uh, at Rothschilds. I learned an enormous amount of questioning and, and, you know, and it was at the dot-com revolution. So that was really interesting as well because, I, you know, we listed Tech One, which is now still one of our top five largest positions in the portfolio. And, I, you know, we listed A good it. result this week. Yeah, very good <laughs> result. Uh, NYB, we listed. 
and we even listed uh, we listed some some other uh, companies that you know obviously have gone by the wayside, but that was the the time. But it also taught you a lot about IPOs and that whole process. And then I fell pregnant with my second son, went on maternity leave, and I was poached again by Albert and went to Tower Asset Management, which after four years actually shut down its operations in Poor Australia. Old Albert, he seemed like everywhere he went, yeah. something, something <laughs> happened. Uh, and so that was the reason for those changes. And again, AB and Amro got poached by Deutsche within a year of being there. Yeah, and my funds management career has been continuous since then. So let's fast forward a little bit yeah. and go to 2008. Yeah. I'm fairly certain when Colonial First State. Yeah. And you get the job to yep. run small companies, which yep. is an interesting area. Yeah. You've got to be a generalist. Minus that, if I remember correctly, Martin Littler was there at the time, yeah. Martin's polarising yeah. character. Yeah. For the people who worked with him, I think yeah. they enjoyed that. For the people who had to deal with him, they found yeah. it quite, um, yeah. quite challenging at times. Yeah. What was Martin like to work with? Ah, well, he was, again, a great mentor, great supporter. You know, he identified Pavlos, uh, who was working in the quant team, is now a core member of my team, as being somebody who really, you know, could benefit from being, you know, mentored by me and part of the team and is still part of the team. And Michael, he was a huge supporter. And and when he left, I, I think I kept the email, but he said, you know, yeah, just told me how great I was. And and that's, of course, great, very, um, you know, gratifying from someone, as you say, so polarizing for all his faults. And there were many. Well, there was a famous <laughs> story where Credit Suisse, <laughs> if you remember correctly, they sacked one of their clients. I'd never heard of that before. Well, they wouldn't deal with Martin, <laughs> a broker sacking yeah. a client. Remember, I'm a, I'm a working class girl. I'm the daughter of a trade union leader. You know, Marty was nothing for me to deal <laughs> with. <laughs> He's the the son of a painter and docker. I mean, I knew exactly where he was coming from. And and so for me, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, private school on the upper north shore of Sydney. I, I grew up in the rough and tough of seeing how trade union leaders operate. And so for me, he was dad. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty, definitely in the 70s, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So let's delve a little bit on how you do things yeah. at, at at the small companies and you've yeah. got various funds yeah. now. You've got a 130-30 and, and you actually go fairly high up the market cap. Mm. It's not all small, tiny companies. But over a long period now, you, you've been able to perform with a fair bit of money. Yeah. Um, so there's stock picking, but there's also portfolio construction. Can we start on yeah. the portfolio construction? Mm. How, how do you put a portfolio together for a large chunk of money? And we're talking yeah. billions of dollars where yeah. things like liquidity – Things like sustainability yeah. of small caps, because yeah. unlike big companies, yeah. small caps are not too big to fail. Yes. Things can go right. wrong. Correct. So can you run us through that, yeah. how you would build a portfolio? Yeah. Well, first of all, there are three strategies. One of the strategies obviously plays in the large cap space. So liquidity is not, you know, they're usually established businesses. So 70% of the money in our mid cap funds, which is about 2.6 billion of what we manage, are in top 100 liquid companies. And then it also has 30% uh, in that portfolio of highly liquid small caps and future top 100 companies. So almost every one of those companies ends up migrating into um, into top 100 because that's the idea of that strategy. In terms of our long short strategy, we often use, we do play, it's, it's got a much more constrained capacity. And as a result, um, because it's less than half a billion, um, the whole of that strategy and constrained in that way, we're able to use the funds that are generated from shorting to invest in microcaps. Just so we clarify that. So when you short a stock, you go into, you borrow the stock from a lender, you sell it into the market and you get funds for that. You do. Which yeah. you can use on the long side. Yeah. Or and to you buy can stuff. go longer your longer positions, which we do. Uh, but in addition to that, you can also apportion some of that money on microcaps. And for us, because you very rightfully um, pointed out the vagaries of investing in small and mid caps as well, 
Well, what do we do? We invest in single industry businesses, right? A lot can go wrong in a single industry business. And what what do we know about these businesses? They are often growth companies and they need capital to grow. So you need to understand their capital needs, their ability to actually generate free cash flow if they're a larger business or even a small business, their ability, what's actually on the balance sheet. Do they have assets, privileged assets? So, you know, it could be a building material company that you have a whole bunch of investments and small caps in, let's say CSR, and it might, its earnings might have, as you know, it's a leveraged, um, it's a leveraged with a, company with a, with a big cycle. fixed, you know, fixed cost structure. However, it's net cash in this particular case. It has very high margins in Chiprock because, you know, it dominates that market. So it has pricing power. These are the lenses that you're always thinking about businesses and then ranking them. And it has property. It owns, um, you know, what is 200 hectares next to uh, where the new airport's going to be built in Sydney, right? That is extremely valuable land that, you know, that will go for um, a a huge amount. You have quarries that are no longer uh, being mined that can obviously be converted to, um, to a property trust, whether it's an industrial property or it's even housing. So these, these are businesses where you think, okay, my downside risk is protected. The other thing we look for is businesses that are creating long-term, um, you know, platforms that have recurring revenues. And we really like those types of businesses because if you have recurring revenue, then you're more likely to be able to take on debt. And obviously you can more confidently invest in growth. So something like Tech One, which has a huge amount of recurring revenue, or let's say Iris, which is 90% recurring revenue, businesses like that, your downside risk is protected. So when we look at our market, what we're always thinking about is more about preservation of capital because of all the things that you just mentioned, single industry businesses, a lot can go wrong. Can they fund themselves? You know, what's the cash flow generation? What are the assets? Is it asset rich? Is it a telecommunications company with a lot of, you know, defensive earnings and and a lot of infrastructure? Price always comes into the equation, but it feels like to me that you're happy to pay up a bit if you can get those characteristics in a stock. Yes, we Is are. that a fair comment? That is a fair comment, but at the same time, we're neither value or growth because those characteristics, remember, we have to build a portfolio and there are 50 odd stocks in the portfolio, 50 stocks. Not all of those stocks are going to have those characteristics. So some stocks might be cyclical building materials companies that are extremely cheap, have very high dividends, cash on the balance sheet, and clearly the downside risk has been priced in. Sure, they might fall, you know, 10 or 20%, but the downside risk has been priced in. When we're analyzing companies, we can, you know, something like Ingham's, people will say, well, that's a defensive business. And we would say, well, it isn't a defensive business because when it was IPO'd, it had no assets. It was just an operating business and it was selling a commodity product to Coles and Woolies and Aldi, who obviously have a lot of market power. Big customers. And then you're exposed to commodity prices in the feedlots and things like that. So you actually have to understand, what am I actually buying? You know, sure, I'm selling a a defensive style food, but does this business have factories? Does it actually, you know, own those land? Does it, all of those sorts of things come into play when you're thinking about downside risk protection? And when you're doing that, just getting back on your portfolio construction, do you hug an index and go overweight, underweight? Do you just purely stock pick? And what kind of size positions are you happy to take? Yeah. And how do you figure that out? So all of that is, um, it's a very good question. So in terms of sizing of positions, we, we're, we're index unaware. So there's a lot of, um, it's all bottom up, it's all fundamental. But because of the way we invest, we would have defensive positions in the portfolio and we would have high growth, as you said, and high PE like Technology One stocks in the portfolio. So there's a big breadth of companies. Now, remember what I said right at the beginning, 
single industry businesses need capital to grow, a lot can go wrong. So usually, if you're going to have a large active position, and we could go up to three or four or 5% active relative to a benchmark, or even if it's not in the benchmark, we could have, you know, but that is the um, the maximum active position we would have is 5%. Typically, it's three to three and a half. Remember what I said? Those types of businesses where we have the highest confidence of their returns, where the management team is really good at allocating capital, where our financials are extremely strong, all of those types of businesses, what do we know about them? They tend to be quite expensive. Valuation is usually expensive. So it's very hard to find businesses where you have that level of confidence in the business. So usually the market misprices them or takes a very short-term view on a short-term downgrade. For example, Oz Minerals at $18, world-class assets, low-cost, copper, a 50-year project potentially in West Musgrave in two critical metals for the world, copper and nickel. And, you know, it gets um, derated significantly from $25 to $18 um, because it misses a quarterly. That's an opportunity to go- well, It should, should have been an opportunity for BHV back then. <laughs> yes. That's the opportunity to actually have an extremely high weight in that stock. So, you would have your high highest weight because you have an excellent management team, you have a low-cost operator, you have world-class assets, you have long life. So, in other words, you have a long time to produce the cash flow or a technology one if it gets mispriced relative to an Altium or a wise tech because, remember, it's a relative game. Mm, so, so you would have your largest active positions in extremely high-quality companies and then, you know, other companies where you're building conviction and the vast majority of our companies are one or two percent active positions. And they are usually because they might be very good companies, but the valuation reflects that. Or else um, they're companies that you're building conviction on, where you're thinking, for example, NextDC started off as what we would call a tier three, a small active position. This was a company that when we first invested in it was not in the index. It couldn't get funding from a bank right? Because the banks didn't understand data centers. They were building data centers. They didn't have contracts yet. As they progressed and they were able to get bank debt, obviously they raised capital. They had contracted revenue with the big hyperscalers like Amazon, like Microsoft, like Google. As they were able to reposition themselves, that position grew to 1% and 2% active. It eventually became 3% active. And then it went into top 100 and is now one of our largest active positions in our mid-cap fund as a top 100 stock. So that is usually the trajectory that we go through. And sometimes those businesses that we're building conviction on fail. And we end up fail in the sense that they don't actually deliver what we thought they would. They don't have a management team that has allocated capital appropriately and we will sell out of them. Completely. Completely. But it's very rare for that to happen. It's very rare for us to sell out of a company unless it gets taken over or it migrates into another universe and we're forced to sell it if we're in our small cap funds. So just to finish up on the portfolio, performs better in a market like 2022 where it's been tough going with rates going up or a market like say 2018 into 19 when very low interest rates, growth was all the rage. Which one suits your portfolio better? So what you'll find is because of all the things that I said that we're we're focused on preserving capital as a first port of call. And we get a lot of the growth stocks, right? But, you, you know, there's a lot of alpha to be made in small. So you don't have to get alpha, you know, afterpay, which we, you know, didn't know. You don't have to get those stocks to still perform as good as some of those managers. We, um, if you look at us statistically over any time period, more than 80% of the time in down markets, we will outperform the market. And in up markets, unlike some value investors or, you know, more quality end investors, we probably 
probably outperform probably 57% of the time is what the statistics show, which is not a bad hit rate. In markets where you're getting a junk rally, if you're looking at, you know, preserving capital and you're looking at businesses that have sustainable, are building sustainable business models, then clearly there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to go up that don't have those characteristics. So we keep up because we own the quality end of that and they also go up, but we don't do as well as others who might be a bit racier at that end. And then when the market is flat or down, yeah, we do exceptionally well. Very good. So let's get back to you. Yeah. It's been a fairly long journey, 14 or 15 years running this yeah. part of at now called First Centia. It's not easy. Every year, every month, yeah. virtually every day, we said mm. that yeah. you're performing. Mm. It becomes very difficult to cope with underperformance for any given period. It weighs on you. That's what I'm saying. Do, do you feel that that's the case over many, many years? Because you don't look like you're, no. <laughs> you're lacking <laughs> energy yeah, at this no. point. Um, remember what I said right at the beginning, because we're so downside risk focused and the vast majority of the money that we invest, remember, is for industry funds and for workers of Australia, but also because of the way we invest, we tend not to get as distressed about if a stock falls a lot, like, you know, Oz Minerals did, didn't make any sense. I mean, that business is clearly not broken because BHP, you know, made a bid for it at 25 and now $28.25. Uh, you know, so so clearly, you know, we, we know the value of the businesses that we're investing in. So, you know, we have a lot of confidence in balance sheets, in cash flow statements and, and the sort of stocks where the vast majority of our funds. So, we don't stay awake at night because we're not making macro calls on what the Federal Reserve or the Reserve Bank of Australia is going to to make those decisions. So we build resilient portfolios and we build them for three with a three to five year outlook. If we were making huge bets on particular macro events, then certainly that would be a characteristic. But we have highly liquid businesses that we look at, that we mostly invest in. We're looking at businesses that have great balance sheets, that can be sustaining, sustainable businesses, enduring businesses. It sounds like you keep to the fundamentals, which, yeah. which not to dumb it down or anything, but it sounds like it's a much more simple way about going things, which you don't want too much comp- when you've got to make decisions every day. Correct. Yeah. And and everyone in my team feels the same way because obviously the tone is set at the top. <laughs> they have also, you know, that you don't see them. Obviously, we get extremely distressed if uh, there's a profit warning and a company's share price falls. You feel a bit sick. Uh, we, we all do. <laughs> we never we never get through that. Um, but we we also, you know, we, we just stick to the fundamentals and the facts and nobody gets emotional. It's a team of people, even though... You know, obviously, I, I come across as a, a very effusive person. We're not actually very emotional people in terms of what we do. And all of our conversations, which is why we've been together for so long, are always constructive because we always put the interests of our clients first. And because we have to face our clients, because most of them are institutional on a, you know, monthly basis in some cases, we have to always think of their interests and the decisions that we make are not about us personally, are about what we're delivering to our clients. And everyone in the team is incentivized the same way, which is what we deliver to the clients, not what they individually deliver through their stock calls. And that means culturally, there is everyone is there helping each other, trying to find the right answer for the client. Can I close the loop then before we finish up? I can understand the intellectual challenge that you find yeah. in markets because you're delving into a bunch of different industries and how it works. Just going back to your parents and the trade union movement and that approach to life, you're operating in the capitalist system, yeah, which normally attracts different type of um, yeah. approach and mm. political view. Mm. Do you reconcile that difference with what you're saying about that you're managing money for the workers of Australia, yeah. their superannuation? Yeah. for their well-being in the long run. Is that is that how you think about it as you're going to work each day? I, I certainly do. And 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 the respect that we have to have for those the 
public servants whose money we we manage, the the nurses, the teachers, all of those people. The fitter um, and turners. The fitter and turners, <laughs> absolutely. The coal miners, uh, all of those people and the respect that we, because everybody in the team came from actually a migrant background, <laughs> uh, a second generation migrants and the respect uh, for money. So there's always, that obviously means that, you know, that downside risk, that aspect that we all have in our DNA of not losing money is very embedded in in everything that we do. And yeah, that is something that we we always think of, you know, because we, we respect our money and we should respect the people whose money we invest. And, you know, and we're humbled the fact that we're able to do this incredibly interesting job and also to allocate money into hopefully companies that will provide jobs for workers, for skilled workers, for tech workers that will make Australia a much better economy, all of those sorts of things. That loop, you know, we feel very much a part of that and that we're allocating capital to the decarbonisation of the world, to technology platform companies that are changing the makeup of Australia. Would have been such a great privilege to invest in something like Atlassian if we were ever able to, you know, things like that, you know, which which are contributing to Australian society through employment and through culture and all of those sorts of things. Really, really important. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming in. It's been a great chat. I've learned a lot and I get the feeling that the Australian workers are in safe hands for a bit longer yet. Thanks, Dawn. Thank you. Thank you.